0: Welcome to The Sandbox with Justin Peters, connecting you to the ideas and tools to improve your life. Now, let's go. Welcome into The Sandbox. I'm your host, Justin Peters, and today's guest is Brendan Kumasari, a speaking coach and founder of MasterTalk. Brendan has spoken over 400 times through workshops, keynote speeches, and case competitions, which he'll explain a little bit more about in this episode. But like all, he didn't start out with the gift of public speaking. He actually grew up in Montreal where he had to give presentations in French, a language he hardly knew, let alone could present in. Growing up in poverty, Brennan was determined to create a better life for him and his mom. He turned to case competitions to provide him with the opportunity to secure a high paying job in consulting out of college. Brennan now works for IBM as a business transformation coach and has helped his mom retire, which is so cool. During the same time, Brennan also began coaching business executives in the art of public speaking. After realizing the lack of free quality resources online and knowing everyone couldn't afford a speaking coach, Brennan turned his attention to the masses. He founded MasterTalk with the goal of being the top YouTube channel focused on public speaking. Brendan is an avid learner, listening to over 10 podcasts a week, but don't let that fool you. He's not all business and no fun. He's quite quirky and proud of it. Self-proclaiming his favorite hobby to be dancing around his basement, probably listening to Taylor Swift or Justin Bieber. In this conversation, we actually deviate quite a lot from public speaking. In this conversation, we actually deviate quite a lot from public speaking. The first half of this episode, you'll hear Brendan's thoughts on passion, how to grow your following, even how to pitch a CEO. But of course, Brendan shares a ton of insight on how to become a better public speaker as well. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Brendan Kumasari. Brendan, welcome into the sandbox. How you doing, man?
1: Good, Justin. Thanks for having me, man. How about you?
0: Uh, not too bad. Uh, we're, we're recording here on a Sunday morning and this is my favorite time to have, uh, conversations with you. So let's, uh, let's jump right into things. And how about you tell me a little bit about master talk and how this all came about?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I make YouTube videos on public speaking basically. And how that, how that started was when I was in university, I used to do these things called case competitions. So think of it like professional sports, but for nerds, while other guys my age were like, you know, playing college football or eating chicken wings or something. I was still eating the same junk food as everyone else, but I was watching presentations. Mm. And that's what I did competitively for fun. So as advice to say in three years, present 500 times, coached dozens of people on public speaking. So when I graduated from university and I got one of the top jobs in the corporate world, I kind of just asked myself, how do I make an impact on the world? How do I make a difference? And that's when the idea for MasterTalk came to be because I realized a lot of the public speaking information
0: sucked so i want to do something about it fair fair so you did you mentioned uh case competition so it's uh sports for nerds so what what did, what did that look like like what what is a case competition i don't i'm not sure if i really understand
1: absolutely yeah i try my best to kind of compare it to professional sports but i'm happy to add more layer <laughs> so so let's say a, a business gives you a problem so mcdonald's comes up to us and goes Hey, Justin, you know, a lot of these healthy yogi people are eating salads now. They don't want to eat burgers. How do we get them to eat burgers? So we want to increase top-line sales. We want to, It's like a business problem. Mm-hmm. And what we have to do as a team, let's say we're on the same team, we have to spend three hours reading a 20-page prompt. So that's like a 20-page document. Outlining McDonald's, its history, all the problems they're facing. Then create slides. Then make risks and mitigation slide. Financial statement, analysis, solution. And then at the end of the three hours, the second it's up, we need to go present them to the executives. And if we speak for a second after the three hours are over, we get immediately disqualified. So it's this really weird environment. I know you're probably wondering who the hell would put themselves through this. It's (laughs) like crazy. But that was our life. So a lot of our coaches were senior executives of companies. So instead of them having dinner with their family, they would come to our universe in the evenings and just look at us and go, You called this a presentation? and then just ring us. Like it was uh, it was intense. But I got really good early fast because of
0: that also. Uh. Yeah, I did something similar. Um, we had something called DECA where we did presentations too, and you pick a category and you would present at, at certain levels, and there's both team and individual. So uh, I, I'm not going to shame you too much for that because I did do a little bit of that, and I thought it was kind of fun, um, but you got three hours. Do you do you guys break apart separate roles? I mean, it would take me three hours just to read that 20-page report probably.
1: Yeah, so, so how the how the game works usually is when you start as a team, you're all reading the cases together. But over time, you realize that you just don't have enough time. Like, you just don't. Because the second after the three hours are up, there's no, like, time to practice. They bring you right away to the presentation room. And they put the slides up, and you go. You just present, right? There's no in-between. So what starts to happen over time is every individual team member gains a certain amount of strength and a certain amount of quality. So I'll give you an example. Like me, I realized really fast that I was never the smartest guy on the team. Never, ever, but I was really good at structuring the case. So let's say the slides, like knowing how to present it. And I was really good at speaking it. Mm. So let's say, for example, I would speak to McDonald's, like case one. I was like, oh, okay. Hi, McDonald's. My name is Brent. But after case like 300 at the end, I was like, I know how to intro. Let me just intro. And I just make it up on the fly and I go there. And there's just like the golden arches of McDonald's are unforgettable around the world i just go crazy <laughs> and, and what's what's totally insane is like what from the judge's perspective when they watch us they go "What? Well, look i thought these people worked on this thing for three hours like what's happening mm. so, so to answer your question the idea what happens over time is some of the team members end up not reading the case at all
0: wow so why why do people put themselves through this it's like what what's the ultimate outcome here
1: of course So the reason why people put themselves through this is because a lot of the great companies that people want a job at after business school sponsor these things. So let's say you take companies like McKinsey & Company, Bain & Company, BCG, IBM, Deloitte, PwC. I know a lot of people might not know a lot of these names, but just to give people context here. This is every business school goers dream to get a job, at. it's kind of like when you get drafted to the NFL, just a lot easier to do than the NFL for sure, <laughs> in, in relatively speaking. Because if you don't get drafted, you know, you're, you're, you, you, you don't get the riches, you don't get the fame, you don't get the glory. And if you do get drafted, your whole life changes. So for me, I was a guy in poverty, low middle income, parents made minimum wage. So for me, case competitions was my way out. Because if I got into cases, I knew that I was going to get a really good job after university because very few people make the program. So 400 people apply every year, 80 people make it, right? And there's 8,000 students in every given year. And most people within the program get multiple job offers. So I'll give you an example to kind of bring this home. Yeah. So there's this international competition in Montreal called JMUC. So this is the John Molson undergraduate case competition, the best best weeks of my life. Honestly, it was amazing. Mostly because I never competed. I was mostly a volunteer. It's really intense. So what happens at this competition is 19 countries from around the world. I know this sounds crazy, people, but 19 countries fly out to Montreal, spend $10,000 to enter the competition, hotels, accommodation, food, everything's paid by the school just for them to give PowerPoint slides. Like it's insane. In that given year, this is two, three years ago, Walmart was the case sponsor. But Walmart didn't just spend 30 grand to sponsor it, and they did that to get the top blood, right, the top recruits. They did it because, well, actually, the charged like the guy who was giving the case, I mean, was not the manager at Walmart. It was the senior vice president of the company, like for Canada. So you're there as a 20-year-old, and you're just there like, oh geez, like the VP is here. It's crazy. And that's the the idea. So most of us end up getting multiple jobs. And another example I can give is the people, like when you're a volunteer for the competition, how it works is when people come to the Montreal, you're their dad or their mom for the week. So I did JMUK for three years. One as like a part-time volunteer. The two other years, I was the head of one of the teams. Mm -hmm. So the second year, it was the University of Hong Kong. So I was basically their dad was showing them what, portuguese chicken was they were freaking out and then the third year was the university of tamasat from bangkok thailand tamasat was really interesting because they got here we don't know each other but that's the magic of jmac you don't know them and then after a week you're like brothers and sisters like it's crazy you're like best friends so they get here and i'm in the car with them okay and I and I just ask them like they go they go like where do you get where did you get a job and I go oh you know I got a job at IBM and consulting which is really competitive and they go oh really good job, and then I go, what about you two where, where do you all work and they said Bain Bain McKinsey so let me give you an idea what that means so at the Bangkok office in Bain, I would say maybe seven hundred people apply, two people get offers, like so that two, was the two. Those were the two. You got oh. it. So I just looked at, I was like, so you're the two. And they just went, yeah. And I just went, whoa. So anyways, it's pretty crazy, man. But most people do this for jobs. And then after I did it for a job, it became it became an obsession. Like, I, I just was crazy. Like, you would see me at night in school. Like, most the best case competitor, let's say top five or top ten of any year, we wouldn't go back home. Like, we would just sleep there. I would just be in sweatpants. I was sleeping, like, four hours a day. So think, I don't know if anyone's seen Michael Jordan's documentary. I related a lot to that. I, I didn't practice at his level of intensity, but I was crazy. That's why I learned public speaking
0: so quickly. So um, naturally, you, you must have been a really great public speaker growing up, wanting to get into this. I don't think a lot of people uh, really want to be public speakers, but, but you seem like someone that's probably naturally gifted at this. Is that true? Uh, definitely a mix. So when I was five years old, so I grew up in Montreal.
1: And in Montreal, French is a required language. So I when my parents sent me to French school, because I needed to learn it, not only was I uncomfortable with presentations, I had to give them in a language I didn't even know. So when I was in grade seven, grade two, grade four, I would just stand up in front of my classroom and go, uh, bonjour, and I would start to freak out. So public speaking definitely wasn't my thing for most of my life, I would say. I started catching on a bit towards the end of high school, but I wasn't like this energetic, uh, oh, yeah, I'm going to present three times a week. Like, no way. Mm. But then after I got to college, I got a bit better. And then it was in university that I really wanted to, to get better at public speaking. But the reason had nothing to do with being a motivational speaker or being a YouTuber. I just wanted to be the best in the program. Because when you're in that weird subculture of a subculture, it's like 80 people or like 500 people in Canada or the U.S. who know what a case competition is, the people within that circle are just obsessed with presentations. Like they're mocking you for every little slide. I'll give you another crazy example. So me and my friend Richard were so intense about case competitions that we would yell feedback to each other in public. So I remember like we were doing this small competition to prepare for the program, like to get into it. And it was just like a fun thing. Like it wasn't like, Oh, if you win, you win $10,000 or anything. Like it was nothing. It was just like a, just, you know, pat on the back. And Richard messed up the case. Like he was yelling at teammates he didn't even know. And I got really pissed off. And then at the end of the case, I yelled at him in front of everyone. So everyone who was in the room was just like, and I was like 19 at the time, right? I wasn't like uh, – so everyone was just like, what's happening? And Richard was just like, I know, I know, I
0: sucked. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was crazy, man. So crazy. you got obsessed with public speaking. Fair to say that it's a passion of yours now? Yeah, I think
1: obsession is a better word. Like, it, I think – lo- like, no one's really asked me this question, but if there's one word to describe me best, it would probably be insane. I think that's a good uh, – good use. So yeah, I was, I was, I was fanatic about case competitions. I loved every second of it, to be honest. Uh,
0: uh, And it's crazy that you kind of found your obsession, your passion, uh, but I don't think a lot of people are necessarily in that boat. Um, But I've heard you speak on the fact that you hate uh, the term, follow your passion. Can you, can you riff on that for a minute?
1: Yeah, of course. I think, I think passion is bogus. It's general. It's vague. And if everyone knew the answer to what you're passionate about, we'd all have passions right? So it's completely useless. I think the, the way we need to think about this is the following. What does the world need you to do most now and why? Because what most people don't get is that you could have an unlimited amount of passion. Like you would be passionate about books, you know, you got a nice shirt on, you can be passionate about clothes, fashion, a nice haircut and all that stuff. But you can't really do much with it. You kind of just say, okay, like I like cookies and stuff. But you have to realize that you have a limited amount of decisions, Right? If you don't make a decision, then you'll never arrive at passion. And is a perfect example. My life was pretty simple. I was 12. I made a decision to be an accountant. Why? Not because I was smart or intelligent or important. I just looked at all the careers and asked myself which careers I did not want to do. So I got rid of all those. Like, I didn't want to be a pastor. Or like a plumber or something, not not because they're bad careers, but because I just don't have the arm strength or the <laughs> religious, you know, <laughs> passion for it. So it is. I landed on accounted because all of my grades sucked in uh, in elementary school, except for math. Like I was a math whiz. I was averaging ninety five and everything, but everything else I was like failing. So I was just like, might as well do this. And then when I was nineteen. I made the decision to become a corporate accountant. So I learned about this company called Price Waterhouse Coopers, had no business connections, knew nobody in the business world, had an oversized seer suit, right? That's bankrupt now, by the way, for those who don't know. It's like a $100 suit that I got for prom because my parents couldn't buy me a better one. And I thought Price Waterhouse was a water bottling company. So I get to the information session. I'm in my sweats in the back, and I'm just like, this is not a water bottling company. So I make a decision to get into these big company like corporate firms. So I start meeting other students who have jobs there, you know, start like talking to them. I don't really know how to interact with them because I want a job, but I also want to be friends with them. So it's kind of weird. And then I got a job in accounting. And then I said, Hey, if I want to get a job in consulting at like McKinsey or IBM, I should probably like, do cases. Then I do a bunch of cases. Then I get my dream job in, in consulting. Right. And I, I got out of poverty. I made it. And, that's when I had the idea for Master Talk. It was never about passions. It was about figuring out what was next. And frankly, and I want to emphasize this if I never made the decision to get out of poverty, if I never made the decision to be an accountant, if I never made the decision to be a technology consultant, I would not have the expertise to even do Master Talk. Right, So that's the point. If I had not made any one of those decisions, including going to the university I chose, because we had the world's biggest case competition program in the world, and I didn't even know it at the time, kind of just picked it out, just like, oh, this one, then nothing would, we wouldn't even be having this conversation. Right, So that's the key, people, is you need to figure out what you don't want to do in life because that it's empowering, right? Because there's so much choice. And then from that maybe and yes, less, you want to compare it to what you're actually really good at, like top 10%, top 5%. Then do that, that side job or something. And then as you start to make a stream of income, then the next step after that, in my opinion, for most of us, is going to be if you don't have a vision for the world, steal someone else's. And I'm a good example. Before I started Master Talk, all I wanted to do was solve the water crisis. I just think it's horrifying that 10% of the world's population doesn't have access to clean drinking water. And I noticed that Scott Harrison, who's the CEO of Charity Water, was solving the problem pretty well. There's 663 million people who don't have water. He solved for 11.2 million. I was like, damn, this nonprofit knows what they're doing. So my plan was simple, dude. Like, be really rich become a senior executive in consulting. I had the skills for it because I was a machine at case competitions. Then make a shit ton of money, have a great family. You know, get married, have kids, do the whole Disney movie thing, hopefully. hopefully. And then after that, donate money to Charity Water and die. That's all I wanted to do. I had no aspirations to be this big YouTube star. And frankly, Justin, that would have been my life if I was born just 30 years earlier. Mm. It just so happened that I was born at the right moment at the right time, that case competition started to gain popularity in the early 2000s, right? That they had a really robust program by the time I was 19 and I joined the program because a lot of the coaches who were senior executives were alumni of the program. And they they went up the corporate ladder like crazy fast because they were like 10 times better than any other employee, like what I'm doing now at my company. And then they end up coaching. So all of those stars had to align for me to become the youngest speech coach of the world, right? Because I started coaching C-level executives. So for those who don't know, that's like CEOs and stuff when I was 23. So none of that would have happened unless I was born at that right specific time. So I guess some of it has to do with luck, but a lot of it also has to do with just like make make an effing decision, you know, and then move, 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 and then you'll get there eventually.
0: So you coach C-level executives on public speaking. Is that right? That's correct. How, and you're 23 now? I'm 24 now. 24 now. Yeah. How is a 24-year-old pitch a, a, a CEO to work for him?
1: Yes. Yeah, so even, even I was pretty surprised that a lot of the C-level executives at the beginning cared what I had to say. To be honest, I, I knew personally, like I'm happy to say this publicly, I knew, especially after six months of doing MasterTalk, that I knew more about public speaking coaching than PhDs from Stanford. I just knew. And the reason is simple. It has nothing to do with like intelligence. They just would never take a step back to just ask themselves, "Are they actually helping the person?" I'll give you an example. A lot of these PhD people never they give workshops. Justin, this is how it starts. Did you know that after death, public speaking fear has ravaged like they just. Talk, I'm exaggerating about characterizing here, or a characterizing speech coach. You know, you know <laughs> what I mean. Anyways. They play this cartoonish character, right, where they, they kind of tell you how, how bad public speaking, how it's like ravaging society, like poverty or something. But they don't take a step back. To simp- just ask themselves a simple question. If your goal is to inspire someone, you know, to, to say, hey, you can speak, you can do something, you can share a message, the last thing you want to do, duh, is compare it to death. Like, why would you compare it to death? It just makes no sense. You're not helping people. So that, and because of that obsession that I had with case, like just give, once again, give people a idea. I was up at like 1130 PM and I'd be yelling at the accounting team. Like I was like, "What you did at three minute 46 was just wrong. Why are you looking sad when you're supposed to be smiling? You're talking about the company's future. Like I was so obsessive. So what ended up happening was when I started going to personal development conferences, like think Tony Robbins, Lewis house was the big first event I went to. He has a top hundred podcast in world for people listening. So I went to this event, and I met a lot of really open-minded people, and there's this one person in particular, right, who was just like, hey, like, oh, that's cool that you're a public speaking coach, and he was like a, he was a C-level executive in in tech, so he watched some of my videos back when they were grainy, and he was like, you know what you're doing, man, you want to, like, get on a call or something, and then we just started coaching each other and then he, I was coaching him on like business on life and public speaking. He was coaching me on business. And then we just ended up having a partnership. And then he introduced me to all of his C-level colleagues. And he just said, look, this dude's 24. He knows way more about public speaking than I do. Like you should be listening to him. So I think the key for me has been don't sell people who don't want to be sold. Like I don't go up to the CEO of like Merrill Lynch or something and say, Hey, I'm 24. Like, you know, you want my help? No. And frankly, I don't really want to help them either, if I'm being honest. Yeah. But for me, it was, um, don't just say something, but do it, show it. So the person I do I did want to pitch who ended up becoming one of my clients is the CEO of this nonprofit. So what happened was I didn't just say, and I did it for free, obviously, because it's a nonprofit, just someone, I, I just really respect what he's doing. And I kind of just said, hey, um, here's a voice recording. So I just sent, I emailed them a voice recording, five minutes. Outlining all the mistakes, set, sent him a, a PDF document, time-stamped feedback from one of the keynotes that he had posted on YouTube. He messaged me back 30 minutes later, and he was like, how much do you charge? I was like, for you, I won't charge you a dime because you're a non Just say yes. And he just said, yeah. And he just wow. became one of my clients. So I, I think for me, that the takeaway is if you, what I like about business and what I've enjoyed so far is the market is the market. Like, if you're really good at what you do, then and you sh- and you promote it well well you show people people realize really quickly mm-hmm. and i think just to build on that to kind of add value here that i've realized that i was going to be able to build a very successful practice without making youtube videos it's just what i what i also realized is that's not what i'm in the business for right i i in this thing to sh- to democratize the whole information so i have to always remember that as i move forward mm.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's genius. Uh, uh, there's a book, uh, the um, the third door, I think, by Alex Bannon or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I haven't read it, uh, but but your concept that you're getting at kind of reminds me of it a little bit. Like most people will send out an email or have some kind of marketing, but you just you kind of use this third door, this back door, where you just find a speech or a commencement speech or a recent presentation that they gave, mark up, make some markups, and then send it to them and just like, hey. Here's kind of like a five a free five-minute coaching session. If you want to work together more in the future, I'd love to have a conversation about it. It's genius.
1: <laughs> you know, it's it's not as smart as you would think, right? I was actually really pissed at myself that I didn't send the email when I was 19. Because if I was 19, I did that. I'd actually already be coaching celebrities and all that stuff. Not that celebrities matter, but I mean, in the sense, like, people would know what Master Talk is on stuff. So, So even with someone like that, I still, like, hit myself on the head. And it's funny you also mentioned the third door. So there is one quote from the third door that I'm happy to talk about because I think it's just super fascinating. He, he interviewed this president of Microsoft. I forgot what his name was. I think it was like John Liu or something, but don't okay. quote me on that because I'm going go to get into trouble. But basically what he told Alex when he, got, when he interviewed, when Alex interviewed him, was he said that luck is like a bus. It's like a bus ride. It's always going to come, right? But if you're not prepared you're going to miss it, right? But it's always going to keep stopping and stopping. So so in that president's case, what happened with him is he was uh, he was a really poor, um, you know, human in China, very under the poverty line, but he was really smart at AI and machine learning, right? So he worked really hard, $2 a day, saved up every little dollar to get into this this uh, Chinese university. I think it's Tsinghua, but I'm not really sure. But then when he gets there, and he's really smart, he has like seven research papers done and everything, there's this professor from Carnegie Mellon who comes to lecture and he just, and one of his friends goes, Hey, there's this guy, this professor, here. you should go talk to him or, or just attend. And it just so happened that he was the only student there because it was raining. So there wasn't really anybody. So it was like maybe like five or 10 students or something. So he just started asking questions to that professor about like, and the guy was like, Hey, this guy's really smart. So he's like, Hey, can we talk? And then they start talking and he gave him a full-ride scholarship to Carnegie, right? But, but what he was explaining the president of Microsoft, said, yes, he did get lucky that the guy was there and he was there, but he also had seven research papers ready to go, right? He also put on all that back end. So for me, I didn't expect that CEO to, to email me back because my mentality, that's so why I told my business coach, I was saying, look, my goal is to meet him at 29 after I make, you know, really good money from master talk and I can donate to his journey. And then he obviously he has to meet me. And then I could tell him at that point that, Hey, uh, I'll coach you for free. Like, I just really like what you're doing. But he just told me that like, well, what would you do if you meet, met him tomorrow? And I just thought, I was like, how can I meet him tomorrow? And that's why I made I took two hours to do that feedback. Cause I just said, well, if I'm going to meet him at anyways, I might as well get the feedback ready now. It just
0: shocked me that he replied. That's all. Wow, that's cool. Uh, and yeah, I love the concept of kind of making your own luck a little bit. Um, you know, luck has got to come, but but you got to be prepared for it. I heard you talk about uh, growing to your first thousand subscribers on YouTube. That story. This is just like the textbook example of like straight up hustle and creating your own your own audience. in that can you can you tell uh, my audience a, a little bit about how you got to one thousand on YouTube?
1: Yeah, of course. Let me start with the broader lesson first, but I think the idea is simple. Everything has a price, people, right? Whenever you do something, there's always an equivalent exchange of something you need to give up. Mm-hmm. So in my case, when I, when I got my job in corporate, right, I the first question I asked myself for accounting specifically is what do I need to pay up? Like, yes, I can make half a million dollars doing this. Yes, I'm going to get out of poverty. What's the cost here? So when I went up to the the booth you know the accounting booth i asked the one question nobody wanted to ask which is what do you hate about your job and they kind of just were flabbergasted they just said oh well you know i don't see my family that much i work 70 hours a week and uh but yeah you get paid a shit ton of money and i just looked at that and for some people that is not a good cost commitment they would say well i want to be an artist i don't want to do this this is stupid same thing would be a professional athlete right i don't want to put up i don't want to do 16 hour days for 10 years, and maybe make it, right, and probably not make it, that's not a good cost commitment, but I looked at it, and I said, it's okay, I don't need this for my family for three years, totally fine, I need to get out of poverty, like, for me, that was fine, and for other people it could be desensitized, and they'd be like, oh, Brendan, you're so insensitive, and now my mom's retired, and I'm happy, and we're good, right, so, so it's all about making a decision, YouTube was the same thing, I realized how badly I wanted it, I was just like, this, not because of this, oh, I need to be a YouTuber like Casey Neistat, because it's definitely not the what I'm going after at all. But it was more just like I was so frustrated and, frankly, disgusted at the fact that other speech coaches before me did not democratize the information. Because I know every speech coach on that platform makes a killing. Even for someone like me who just opened his practice like eight months ago, I'm doing very well. And this is like in a COVID world, I'm doing really well, right? So I know those people are minting really good money and are not even investing a bit of it into production, just a bit, right? It really just frustrated the crap out of me. So I just said, for the people who can't afford me, it just became a moral responsibility to just say, I need to do this. And it gives you something interesting to do and work on. So my first thousand subscribers was simple. I messaged 2000 people individually. I said, look, I coached you your whole life on public speaking and all I'm asking you to do subscribe. That's how I built a following really quickly because everyone just raved after me. They said, well, Brendan, you like changed my life through presentations. Even if, you know, in the short term, they didn't like that. I was like yelling at them and stuff. They all, they all obviously became gold medalists at the competition, right? You gold, silver, bronze, you know, they would crush all the other schools because they were just a hundred times better. And the judges would know that. But anyways, they, they didn't just like subscribe. They just said, I'm coaching the next teams. I'm going to tell everybody about your video because I know you don't have time to coach people anymore. And that's why I grew really fast. So I think for, for, for YouTube, the sport is simple. You just need to be more generous than anyone else. And if you're, and give and communicate something that's worth sharing, right? I think that's important. So for me, like, I just do whatever it takes to win. And whether it's case competitions, I used to be a professional League of Legends player. Like, everything I do, I'm just really competitive at what I do. So, with YouTube, it's simple. It's like, how do I get to 100K? Guest on 10,000 podcasts. Even if they have three people watching them, it doesn't matter, right? Because if you meet, and that's what people don't get. You know, they get lost in these follower accounts. It doesn't matter if you have 100,000 followers if nobody cares about you buys your buys or stuff. If nobody knows who you are, if nobody trusts you, that's why for me, hundred K on Instagram means nothing. It means absolutely nothing because they're just looking at my pictures and stuff. But if you have a hundred on a podcast, that's huge, right? Because people are listening to you every week and saying, Justin is someone I trust. I trust him to vet the guests and ask the questions. I'm going to give him my time every week. And that's what matters for me. So for me, if I just meet 10,000 podcasters one on one, and they just tell 10 people, that's it.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot to learn in that lesson. Let's shift gears to public speaking. I want to give some time to uh, your forte here. So uh, first, can you explain this concept of the key idea and how this can help someone structure together a speech?
1: Absolutely. So a lot of people what they struggle with, Justin, is finding a topic. They go, well, Brandon, like, I don't know what to talk about. And like, I don't struggle. And I just say, okay, keep this simple. So the question, the only question that matters is the following. Let's say it's your last presentation ever of all time. You never get to present again. And in that presentation, you know, you're going to say some stuff. You're going to talk about things. But your audience will not remember your name, will not remember your title, and frankly, won't even remember your content. But they'll all remember one sentence. What do you want the sentence to be? So in my keynotes, Justin, to give an example, and I'll use you as also as an example here, to demonstrate this, all my keynotes, I talk about a bunch of public speaking tips. If there's an executive program I'm doing with my C-levels, I'm focusing on things in their meetings. If I'm talking to 10-year-old Rebecca, I talk about how public speaking is like a puzzle. You wanna start with the corner pieces first, right? Because if you talk intentionally about your introduction and your conclusion, which most people don't, it's gonna be much easier for you to build a presentation. But at the end of the day, if there was just one sentence that I had to share with them, it's that anyone could master public speaking. So in many ways, public speaking is like leadership. We think or we know that leaders are created and not born, but we seem to believe that speakers are born, which is not true, right? Because no one was able to simplify the knowledge yet enough for somebody to just say, oh, public speaking is a joke. Like I can totally master this. So for me, the only outcome that I have in my presentation is for you to just say, I can do it. Because if you can do it, and I, and I brainwash you into believing you can, you're gonna follow up with me. You're gonna listen to all my videos, you're gonna start those community groups, you're gonna coach those people you need to coach, and you're gonna create your own way of figuring out through my videos. But you're gonna do it. But if I don't convince you of that, I lose. So for you, it's a similar thing. There's different topics you can speak on in presentation, but in my opinion, your topic is your podcast what's the mission of the podcast what are you trying to achieve from it because a lot of the top podcasters in the world a lot of their uh, their following also comes from live presentation where they just speak it out and they get to meet you in person so then you what you want to do is refine your if you had to summarize your podcast in one sentence what would that sentence be and then play around it
0: Mm, okay totally makes sense um how about we do some true-false too here? And I'll give you a statement. You you tell me if it's true or false, and then give me kind of a 60-second uh, reason why. Is that okay? Of course, absolutely. So how about silence is just as important, if not more important, when you're speaking?
1: Definitely true. So the idea with silence is as simple. Pauses are uh, the number one weapon for speakers. If you're able to pause effectively in a presentation to garner interest, like I'm demonstrating right now, people latch on to the words that you say. But if I speak too quickly, and I'm going la 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 la, la, then you're just like, I don't want to hear this thing. Right? So silences are absolutely vital.
0: Mm, Yeah, and you have a great YouTube video on that as well. So if anybody wants to learn a little bit more about that, the power of pause, I thought is uh, just a great simple first tip for anyone who's trying to elevate their speaking game. What about uh, some topics are just so boring and there's no way to make them interesting?
1: <laughs> Definitely false. So <laughs> when I was in university, I used to give presentations on accounting policies. Uh. And we made it the most interesting thing ever. The teacher loved it because we told jokes. We talked about Lehman Brothers bankruptcy. And it was, we had a lot of fun with this stuff. But the idea is simple. There's no such thing as boring topics, just boring people and mm. the way that they present it. So the issue is never i have to present accounting policies but rather the issue is your reaction to that right so you want to change the way that you vocal tone so how do you vary your vocal tones does your face look interesting like l- interesting to give the presentation if it doesn't doesn't matter if you're presenting world war 2 or podcast you like you don't look interested your audience won't be interested in what you have to say either mm-hmm. and then the last thing is just How do you communicate the topic in a way people understand it? So one way of of communicating accounting policies is saying repo 420 uh, stipulates, and I already lost like half the crowd, so bring everyone back. Or you could just say, Joe has a bakery. Yes, there's this policy. We're going to talk about the policies, repo 420, but it matters to Joe the baker because you have a dream of expanding your bakery operation, of sharing your goods with the world. So how can we make that happen by balancing your sheet, by understanding your numbers so that you can build more bakeries and expand your dream, right? By tying it to something everyone understands, now accounting becomes really exciting. And trust me, I've
0: pulled it up, so you can too. Mm. Yeah, totally agree with that one too. Uh, just it, for those people that are watching on YouTube, you, you can see it, but for everyone that's just listening on audio only, you are so expressive and you can't even hold like your your arms are flying all over the place. Your, your yep, face correct. is very expressive because you've learned that through public speaking and, and uh, you're, you're protruding that energy out and letting people pick that up. So I, I think that's a great tip as well. What about uh, picturing the audience and their underwear is actually bad advice?
1: That's definitely true. I thought you were gonna say true, then I had to say false. So I had to kind of, with, that's definitely true. It's terrible advice. It makes no uh, sense. I actually honestly don't know where it comes from, and I don't want to know. Probably. Or it's like would, the
0: most conventional, like public speaking wisdom. Like the very first tip that you hear about public speaking: just imagine everybody in your underwear. And I always thought about that. And I'm like, oh, well, how is that helpful? <laughs> how how is that
1: help? Like I like let's flip that. What's the number one tip that you should know? Right, the most important one. I know I only got six seconds for this, so I'll no, make it ahead. quick, is understanding where the fear of public speaking comes from. Like, everyone's scared of public speaking. I've been on podcasts in New Zealand, India, Australia, all these countries around the world. They're all scared of public speaking. They all relate to it. But we don't know why, you know, why this happened. And if you ask any other speech coach, they'll say, well, you know, you should, like, breathe or drink water. But I'm like, you're not addressing the core issue. Like, why are they scared? Not like what to do. it, Because if you tell them tactics, you're basically telling them that the fear is normal. The fear isn't normal. We shouldn't be scared of public speaking. It makes no sense. I'll explain what really quickly. Yeah, let's go. Right? Where do we give most of our presentations? Right? That's where the answer lies. And the answer for all of us, whether you're a high school dropout, which is totally fine, or you're a PhD, you gave most of your presentations in high school anyways. In school, that's where you give them. So what happens in school? Three things. One, we never get to pick the topic, and it's not something we're passionate about generally. Think Renaissance. You probably think it's a fruit. It's a time period in history, right? Two, students don't care, not because they don't care about us. Most of us are good people, okay? I don't know why, like, people think people are bad. Most of us are good people. It's not that students hate you. It's that they're worried about themselves, School is one of the few presentation environments where you're presenting to people who also present. So let's say, for example, on this podcast that you're listening to, where you listen to me and Justin speak, in this context, you don't actually get on the podcast 10 minutes later to add your thoughts, right? So your your focus as a listener is just saying, what does Brendan and Justin have to share in this conversation? And that's it. But in school, when you're sitting there as a student, you're not paying attention to Brendan, because you're saying, oh crap, I gotta go in 10 minutes and I gotta present prehistoric times. So, of course, no one's gonna listen to you. And then you have a teacher who's super well educated. My, my sister's an English teacher. Like, I have a lot of respect for teachers, but they're super stressed. They got 40 students to go through. So, let's recap this. You never get to pick the topic, you're speaking to students who don't care, and you have teachers who are too stressed to coach you. But this behavior gets perpetuated in all the subjects that we present, English, math, sciences, arts, gym, over and over and over again. We're taught to believe that public speaking is a chore. It's a responsibility. If we go to school, it's tied to a grade. If we go to work, it's tied to an outcome. It's always tied to something. And if we don't do well, we get slapped in the wrist, right? We get punished every single time. That's the issue. It's not drink a glass of water. It's understand that the fear has nothing to do with you. It's not your fault. It's the system in which you grew up with that taught you that public speaking is a bad thing. And I'll prove it to you. I coach seven-year-olds who are a lot of those executives as kids. I get them to speak better than them in three weeks. Mm. Not like Three years in three weeks, why? because and this is something you can steal. I want people to steal this if you're an educator listening right now or somebody who coaches kids, make them present something they're passionate about. so a lot of my students they present like the first day at school or they're an entrepreneur they want to solve like the find a vaccine for COVID or something that's a presentation. two treat them like they're the same age as you with the same maturity seven year old I treat her like she's my age. treat her like a CEO. So she feels like she's valuable. She feels like she has something to say. And then the third thing is create a supportive environment. If you handpick students who all want to master communication, there's no more laughing. There's no more insulting. It's just like, hey, go. Like we want to support you. Everyone's clapping for each other. Three weeks, they're all machines, right? This is something easy we could implement in the education system. Obviously, I don't have the world with all to do that. So at least the least I can do is come on a podcast and talk about it. But yeah, that's the thing. Like what's – and one last thing I'll add here. Yeah. Why does Julia, I'll just use her as an example, why is she not scared of public speaking since she loves theater? Why is that the case? A lot of people think it's because she's extroverted. Oh, you know, Julia's an extrovert, she's in theater. No. It's because Julia's perception of what public speaking is for is completely different. It's not a parking ticket you get. It's not a grade that you're supposed to obtain. It's an opportunity to make a difference, an opportunity to entertain, an opportunity to perform, an opportunity to share a lesson that matters to people. And that's why Julie is not scared of public speaking. And if we can change that perception, we won't need to breathe for five seconds before presenting. We just present.
0: <laughs> okay, fair, fair. Um, last one for you here. The best way to practice is to deliver a variety of speeches Um, so that you start learning all the different skills required to be a good speaker.
1: Man, you're so good at this intro thing. I I would say definitely false. Uh, It's useless. Let me explain why. Whenever you learn a new skill, think about piano or even reading books, you have a couple of choices, right? The first choice is try and play 50 different songs and figure it out, or better... Do the same song 50 times show off to your friends that you can play the piano they go wow justin you're so good at this even if you only know one song chopsticks. Then, yeah <laughs> chopsticks oh man that took me so long to get right but i did it eventually and then they go and then someone like you let's say you're the one playing piano you go hey you know if i got this one song right imagine what i can do with 10 other songs and then you're on your way we do that with literally every skill you could think of basketball, ballet break dancing it's always swimming you're always focusing on the same stroke the same move and then over time you get better but we don't do that in presentations it's wednesday our friend our colleague our teacher our boss our client says hey you know justin we got a presentation for you i don't know why your friends ask you to do a presentation but hey you never know <laughs> hey, in my case in my case program <laughs> that happens all the time actually <laughs> i think that's why it came off the tip of my tongue because we just present to <laughs> each other So they say say on Friday, you got a presentation to give. So you got two days to give it. So you're like, I'm not talking to my family for two days. You spend like a lot of time on it too. Like 10, 15 hours, you really put in the effort. You present it. And then you take that beautiful presentation you work so hard to give. You crumble it up. You put it in the garbage and you never look at it again and move on to the next one. Whereas the best speakers in the world, think of everyone that you love, Tony Robbins, Gary Vaynerchuk, on and on. They present the same thing over and over and over again. And that's the secret. Tony Robbins is not going to come up to you and say, hey, you know what, Justin, for this seminar, you want to try talking about porcupines for three days and see what happens? Just to see. I mean, there's 13,000 people in this room. Let's let's change things up a bit. No, you're not delivering on your promise, Tony. You got to talk about mindset. The same shit that you're going to say in every seminar, we want you to say again, right? So why do you keep changing your topic? Right, stay on the same topic. Do it hundreds of times. My keynote I've done over three hundred times, not thirty times, three hundred times, and then become exceptional.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think that's great advice as well. Um, but I don't think most people give keynotes or have prepared speeches. I, I think most of the time it's it's impromptu speeches. It's um, you know, hey, you got to get up and say something for uh in front of your your colleagues for XYZ uh initiative or you need to give a um speech at a wedding, whatever it may be. Is there a way that we can start practicing impromptu speaking?
1: Yes, yeah, so two parts to that. So one part of that is how do you practice when you're not in that keynote scenario, right? Because mm-hmm. I because I, I know that's not everybody and that's a good point that you brought up. So the way that we want to think about this is let's say Julia again, she works at a bank nine to five, she comes up to us and goes, well, Justin, well, Brennan, I work at a bank. Like, what's what's repeatable about this? I can't do the same presentation over again because my project updates change all the time. All right. I go, perfect, Julie. That's, fair. That's a fair analysis. What do you do outside of work? Just out of curiosity. And then Julie would answer something like, I don't understand why this is relevant, but, uh, you know, like I run marathons. I'm a gold medalist. I do Spartan races. I take care of my kids. I bake. And I just go, okay, Julia, you just gave me three repeatable presentations. And now Julia's confused. He goes, what do you mean? Like, I just, and I go, exactly. You can make a presentation on parenting tips because there's a lot of parents who don't know what they're doing and you have a lot of experience. B, you can talk about the importance of fitness and nutrition. Now, sport and races help you change the paradigm of how people view women in the sport and how you've thrived in it. And three, talk about baking, your favorite recipe, share it with somebody. When you when Julia presents that to three people, not 3,000, three people, and one of them goes, hey, Julia, I watched your presentation on Spartan Race. It really moved me. I actually went for a run this morning. Thanks for inspiring me. That's when public speaking becomes addicting. Because then Julia looks at this and says, huh, you know, I'm actually not bad at this thing. Let me just go present in front of 10 people, then 20 people, then 50 people, then 100 people. Before you know it, she's a keynote speaker. The point is simple. You don't need to be a keynote speaker to apply this. All you need to do is pick a topic that solves a problem for somebody else that you can do over and over again. And I preach what I teach. That's what happened to me. I was 20. I never had an idea of being a YouTuber. I was just making slides in my basement to kind of help the other students in the program. I was presenting to two people, seven people, but these two people were like really smart people. So they'd go, oh, you know, we should change this, do this, do that. Then over time, the number just kept growing, 70, 100, 200, 500, and then I just started presenting to more people. Mm. So I think that's, that's the key is as you, as you kind of move up the ladder, repeatable. Second part that you talked about, impromptu. So the idea with impromptu is the following sentence. I don't know what I'm going to say as much as you do, but through my way of speaking, I'm going to convince you that I do, so that with some practice, you will too. So, one easy exercise I can give people right now is what I call the random word exercise, where you essentially pick a random word and you make a presentation out of it. So, let's demonstrate really quickly. Yeah, I'm let's sure do you've, it. Been, you've been waiting oh, for this. So I like have been. been I have been
0: because it's so fun to do. So, uh, how about a cup of coffee?
1: Cup of coffee. Oh, you made my life easy. I thought you were going to give me <laughs> something really hard because you did so much <laughs> research on me. Okay, coffee's easy. I'm just going to say that for the record. It's early morning at 6 a.m. and I start walking up the stairs from my basement. And I sit down on my table or my dining table and I look at the sun that's so warm, but I realize what the most important morning of, or moment of that morning is. It's not the eggs, though the eggs taste great. It's not the steak, even though the steaks taste amazing. And it's not the orange juice because I'm not a big fan of juice in the morning, but it's that cup of coffee, that fresh brew that helps you not just enjoy the day, but share a moment that matters with people. Whether it's to your kids where you ask them how school is going, to your amazing partner who's there with you every step of the way. A cup of coffee isn't just a symbol of getting your day started. It's a symbol of making every day count. It's a symbol of making every day matter. And that's why today I'm going to talk about the history of coffee. And how with just one cup of coffee, you can look at your day in a completely different light. So, yeah, anyways, the point that <laughs> I'm making it. with the – yeah, thank you. But you gave, you made it
0: easy <laughs> on me because you gave me coffee. I once
1: did a podcast, so the guy just went hippo, and I was like, what the hell do I do with this?
0: <laughs> I, I, I had some weird things out there. I'm like, you know, for the sake of the audience, I'm going to spare them. I'm going to do something easy. I was like, that or – I could do something for you like Taylor Swift or Justin Bieber and That's and easy. <laughs> so so uh so taking this practice and you 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 pick something every day and you just do a simple, you know, 2-minute intro just like you did right there and and you'll start to feel a rhythm and get used to impromptu speaking. That's absolutely correct. So this is super super simple for people. Don't compare
1: yourself to me, right? I've done this thousands of times literally. I do this like 20 times a week. So what I recommend people to do, pick five random words every day, five minutes, that's all I ask, even if it's just one word, even if you're not even saying, let's say you're in a public setting, just think about what you would have said. So let's say when I'm walking sometimes, because I'm in that case competition mode that I was in the past, even I would walk and say a building, even if I was in a public setting, I would just say you know, buildings aren't just, you know, a, a wall, right? It's, it's a way to protect us, you know, just like go into this stuff like internally and then uh, and then you make up stuff and then you're on your way.
0: That's awesome. Well, we're coming to a close here. Uh, I know we got a hard stop here in a couple minutes. So I want to give you the opportunity if people resonated with something you said, they want to find you, where's the best place to reach out? Yeah, of course.
1: And before I get to that, I think I'll I'll give you my last piece of advice I think is relevant for people is this my favorite quote of all time, which is the following, be insane or be the same. If you want to be like everyone else, go do that. But don't you find it odd that as a 22-year-old, I'm I'm coaching C-level executives, started a YouTube channel on public speaking tips, but at the same time, I'm having this conversation on my mattress. I live with my mother and I don't own a car and I don't plan on moving out of my mother's house until I'm 32. All of these decisions only make sense to the only person that matters, which is you. Right? So if you want to make a difference, you need to realize that the art of being insane is an important one, and you need to slowly step into your insanity so that you can find that truth that nobody else believes, so you can do what nobody else is capable of doing, right? And if you want to talk to me, you know, I'm pretty accessible. I, I'm not famous or anything, so feel free to just message me on Instagram. I'm at Master Your and if you want to check out my YouTube channel, it's Master Talk in One Word.
0: Awesome. Well, that's a great place to end things. I, I highly encourage everybody out there to go check out uh, Master Talk on YouTube. He's got some great content out there. Uh, just recently, you posted on online presentations. So if anybody's struggling with online presentations, you just drop that. Uh, I'm excited to follow you along on your journey, Brennan, and um, looking forward to staying connected. Thanks again for coming into the sandbox. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. If this episode brought value to you, share it with a friend and show love on social. You can tag me at Justin Lee Peters. The link to the show notes is in the episode description, and we'll include all the resources we talked about today. This episode was produced by Gabby Dimickey. I'm your host, Justin Peters. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time in the Sandbox.